Now, it's generally our, our practice here to study through a book of the Bible or a large section of the Bible, and so we've just begun this study of the book of Ephesians, a tre- tremendous book. And, uh, and the first three chapters really are focused primarily on this celebration of what God has done for us, how he has changed our identity, how he's made us a child of the king, and, and how that results in countless blessings. It's a celebration of those blessings. In fact, verses 3 through 14 is, in the original Greek, a single sentence. It's the longest sentence in all of ancient Greek, 202 words. And, and, and you have this idea that Paul begins focusing on what these blessings that we have and, and what it means that we're in Christ, and he starts and he just kind of gets overwhelmed with it and just can't stop himself. The, the whole sentence really is summed up in verse 3. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. It's verse 3. If you, if you look in your, Bi- or your Bibles there, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly, uh, heavenly places. And so it start off by saying, you know, God has blessed us in every spiritual blessing. And then the rest of the, the, the you know, that sentence, that long section, is kind of enumerating what some of those blessings are. Now, one of the things we can struggle with is that we often think of blessings in physical terms. So we think of, do I have blessings? Well, do I have health? And do I have material possessions? And do I have things? And, and when we think in those terms, we might look at this and say, what is isn't every spiritual blessing? There's some blessings I want that I don't have. I'm not sure I have every blessing. Well, no, that's when the Bible speaks of blessings, it's not primarily the physical and material. In fact, the core blessing, more than anything else, the greatest gift that God gives us is our relationship with him. If you think about this, you know, it's this idea that he gives us this relationship, and in that relationship, every other blessing grows from that. We can talk about that in terms of marriage. The greatest gift my wife gives me is the relationship with her. She's given me a whole bunch of other things, but they all are expressions and natural outgrowth of that relationship, and that's, it is with God. He's given us this relationship as as his father, you know, he's our father, and we're the child, and and, and that's, that's where they all come from. In fact, even when you look at the sentence, what you find is that 12 times Paul talks about in Christ or in him. And what it's saying is that all these things flow from the fact that we are in him. We are in Christ. We are in this relationship. And all the other blessings flow from that. And specifically, what is that relationship? It's one of a parent-child. We have been adopted by God as his children. And just as a baby does nothing to be adopted, you know, all they're, they're sitting there as they're doing, they're lying there and they're crying, and, and, and a parent comes and adopts a child based on their decision, based on their grace. And so in the same way, he uses the word of a concept of adoption because we don't do anything. Again, look at what it says in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And and so here he's talking about these are the truths. God loves you that way. And and he's teaching us in this great book that's going to get very practical on all countless issues. He says, if you want to understand something of the Christian life, start with the idea of your relationship with God, your identity of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You understand that you have a different identity and that you have all the rights and privileges that come with that. That's, that's your true identity. 
If you, true to, if you grow to believe this, and, and then not only believe it, but act as if it's true, it's going to change your life. What's going to happen is you'll see yourself differently, and when you see yourself in this high place, you will learn to live up to what you believe about yourself. But the challenge is a lot of us struggle with that. And, and instead, what happens is we have a wrong view of ourselves that, that's based on past failures and past scars that we have. And, and as a result, we struggle to live the life that God has called us. Why? Because we have a low view of ourselves based on a lie, and therefore it's natural to live down to the low view. So we understand this with kids. Think about this. You have a ch child that you understand that if they're always being told, you're a failure, you're nothing, you're, you, know, you, you don't do that with kids. Why? Because it's, it destroys their sense of identity and they will believe they're nothing. See, that's what Satan does with us. That's the struggle that we have. And it is a struggle. These things are, even Paul is saying, it's going to be a struggle to believe this. In fact, right at the end of this great sentence where he finishes enumerating this, he comes back and he says, okay, here's what I'm going to pray for you. And, and look at what he says. He says, verse 17, I pray that the Spirit of God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that God's going to work this. And what do you need to see? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that you may know, that you may understand your identity, the riches and blessings that you have. I pray that you'd believe it. Because if you believe it, it's going to change your life. Let me ask you, why do you think this is so hard? Why is it so hard to believe these things? On the one hand, we might say, well, it's such great truths. It's, you know, we're adopted by this, the king of the universe, by God. We're, God makes us a saint. We're royalty. Those are such great truths. They're, they're hard to really believe. You see, but I think when we really get down to it, for many of us, if not most of us, I think the problem isn't necessarily just that it's so good that we can't believe the good news. I think our core problem is that we have negative messages that we have said to ourselves over the years, that others have said to us over the years, things that we believe about ourselves and we can't get beyond the negative messages. I can't let go of the lie to believe the truth. You see, it's not that we start out with a blank slate. It's not like we're this child that has no background and we have a blank slate and, and all we've ever heard is the positive to say, no, this is who you are, believe it. No, we don't start with a blank slate. The fact is, is that we start by believing something else about ourselves, and, and we have these negative messages that are deeply ingrained, and if we can't get beyond believing those past failures, we'll never be able to fully embrace the new truth. Let me even use a story as an illustration of this. There's a uh, book that is very well known. It's, one of, in fact, one of the most popular books of Christian fiction, especially Christian romance. Uh, called Redeeming Love by Francis, Francine Rivers. It was first published in 1997. It sold over 3 million copies. It's based on the old story of Hosea, the Old Testament story of Hosea, the prophet who was told by God to marry an unfaithful woman. And, but Rivers takes that story, and she sets it in the 1850s during the California Gold Rush. The main character is a, a centered around a woman named Angel uh, who was sold into prostitution when she was just a child, eight years old. And, and her whole life is defined by rejection and abuse. And, and, and in that, she just believes herself to be a nothing, and she survives through self-loathing and hating and, and anger until she meets Michael Hosea, 
which again, you can see the imagery here, is a Christian man that feels like God has told him that he's supposed to marry this woman who's a prostitute. And then the story goes that he pursues her and they get married and then she leaves him and goes back to prostitution and, and there's a struggle where he, she learns to be able to accept the love of her husband, the redeeming power of his unconditional love. Now, this story has gotten even more attention lately because they've just now made it into a movie, which was just released about a week ago. And um, now I'll mention the movie. It's, I, I, it's not an unconditional recommendation. It's a beautiful story, but at the same time, it, it, it earns a PG-13 rating from what it depicts. And uh, so you look at it before you think about going. Uh, but it has a very positive side of the message that's consistent with the book. And, and one of the ideas that is consistent in both the book and the movie is specifically when you look at this woman, Angel. She has a hard time accepting Michael's love because she defines herself by her past failures, by the way that she has been rejected in the past, by the abuse that she has received. She believes that she is nothing, that she is worthless. And because she believes that she is not worthy of being loved, she can't accept the love that is being offered to her. This is something that is you know, a huge part of the movie, even to the degree that you see it even in the trailer, that numerous times you see this theme being played out. In fact, I'm, I'm going to play the trailer and you hear it, in this theme of just her view of herself and how she struggles to be able to understand the fact that she is in fact loved. I told your mother I could take good care of you. I love you more than anyone in this whole wide world. Her mom was dead. She'll be better off here. No, she won't. What's her name? You can call her whatever you want. You'll be my little angel from now on. Angel, how did you end up in this place? She doesn't talk about her past. You got any big plans? Plans? She can't keep me here. You forget where I found you, Missy. I made you a princess. Feel the power, Angel. The only girls who leave here are too old, too sick to work, or dead. I'm gonna kill you. Do it! You are not hidden. She's something to see, ain't she? There's never been a moment you were forgotten. That's Angel. You are not hope. No one gets within a foot of her for free. I have to meet her. What's your pleasure, mister? I didn't come here for that. I hear you whisper underneath your breath. Are you gonna marry me? Take me away from here. Give me the life I deserve. Mm -hmm. I've got too many demons. I don't know how to love. You cannot choose the life you have, but you can choose the life you want. Serves a decent girl, not you. Did you think I couldn't find you? You have to stop thinking that I'm gonna be something that I'm not. That way is home. Your choice.
even in the, you know, talks about, I can't do this because you want me to be something that I'm not. I believe that I am my past. In her sense, the good news was, no, you're loved. Your new identity is your wife of Michael Hosea, but she couldn't hear the good news because she believed these, these things in the past that defined her. No, she was a prostitute. She was rejected when she was eight years old. She was abused and rejected by men. She was unloved. She was not valuable. That's what she believed. And so she believed that she was unworthy of love, and so she couldn't hear the good news because she couldn't let go of the bad news, the lie. Now, I know that's a fictional story. And yet, when we look at that, it's speaking a biblical truth that is, I think God is trying to teach us here, here in the book of Ephesians. What is the good news? What does it say? The incredible truth is that God has blessed us in the heavenly, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless in him. He, as an expression of his love for you, he predestined you for adoption to himself as a child through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That's the wonderful news. But the hard part is many of us struggle to believe this because we have other negative messages that we have been told, that we believe, that we have continued to play as a tape in our mind, that we tell ourselves, and we can't stop believing them. We define ourselves by our past failure, by our past rejection, by our past abuse, and then we feel like we're not worthy of being loved. We're not worthy of being adopted by God. We're not royalty. We're not saints. I can't believe that about myself because I am this. Now, even as we look at Ephesians, Paul anticipates a struggle, and and he tries to teach us some of the things that we have to deal with. And one of the reasons that we struggle with this is the fact of the matter is that if we're talking about I'm not worthy, how do you define worthy? Is it based on performance, based on what you've earned, based on your goodness? Are you worthy of being adopted by God? Have you earned that spot? Are you worthy of being called a saint? Are you really that good? Have you performed that way? No, we haven't. No, in reality, when we look at that, what Paul is saying is that we have those things not based on what we've earned, but based on God's grace. It's actually the opposite of what we've earned. Yes, we've been adopted by the king, but, but we also come out of a place of brokenness. And, and what we need to realize is that, okay, we've got to understand the truth. And part of that is understanding the truth of the lie and understanding not only that, but owning it and saying, okay, is this dealt with? See, look at what it says. Let's go back to verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. He's teaching us that before God could adopt us, he first had to redeem us. Now, right off the bat, you know, you look at it and say, okay, the challenge of this is that talks about redemption through his blood, redemption. We use that word, but I'm not sure we really know what it means. Um, And people in Paul's day, they understood there was a specific meaning. In our day, it's kind of even changed a little bit in some of the ways that we use it. Think about the meaning of the word. How have you, outside of church, do you you ever use the word redemption, redeem? How do you use it? And some of us might think, well, okay, if I've got a friend of mine, maybe it's somebody at work and they really mess up, and you go to them and you say, I'm going to give you a chance to redeem yourself. You got to fix it. You got to, okay, okay, well, well, then you say, okay, maybe we go to, uh, Chuck E. Cheese, or you go to Dave and & Buster's, and you win a bunch of tickets playing games, and you go to the counter to redeem your tickets for a prize. And Well, we use the word, but can you define it? What does it mean? 
It has some, several different usages in, in the English language, but in Paul's day, it had one primary meaning, and everybody then would have understood it. You see, in Paul's day, it would have been very common for people, for various reasons, to be forced into some form of slavery. Uh, sometimes it would be because you couldn't pay your debts. Sometimes it would be because of uh, you know, some, some, something that you did. Many times it would be if your city was at war and was captured, you, know, you were taken as a, a captive and put into slavery as, cap as a captive. But in those slaveries, you could be set free. So let's say, for example, your son lived in a city that went to war with Rome. The city you know, tried to fight Rome, they lost the war, and as a result, all the residents in that city were then taken into slavery. But your son could be set free. He could be redeemed, but you had to pay the price of freedom, the price of redemption. And from, from, that, from a biblical perspective, that's what redemption means. Redemption simply means deliverance from slavery by the payment of the price of freedom. Probably in our day, the closest parallel would be ransom. So you have someone who is taken captive, and the only way to set them free is to say the ransom price, the redemption price. Now, the only difference is, you know, when you're, when you're taken captive, that's not who you are. That's a, a temporary condition. When you're in slavery, that's part of who you are. And so there's a redemption price is, is, a, is, even, is even greater. Now, here's part of the challenge. When, when we think of, um, of adoption in most cases, Many, some of you have gone through the process of adoption. You know there's a legal process, and there's some, it's not cheap, and there's some price to be paid. But it's not you know, a huge price. It's something that's big for all of us. And here's what you've got to realize. When God talks about adoption, he's saying he's not just going through the streets and looking for us as, a, as an abandoned baby and choosing to adopt us where it costs little or nothing. That when God chooses to adopt us, he literally says, God went to the slave market, and he found people that were in slavery, and he paid the ransom price, the, uh, the you know, redeemed price, to be able to buy us free, it's, and there's a cost. You know, even in this imagery that, uh, that Danny had prepared with the, with the bulletin and with the slides, and, you know, you have, even up here, you have, you know, two, are we the pulper or are we the king? You know, are we the pulper, you know, who has no place, or are we, are we a child of the king? What is our true identity? And then as I realized, you know, we needed to add something, you know, because it's not just that we're the pulper, that we're, we're, we were in chains. We were in slavery. You know, this is who we were in Christ. You know, I ordered these and they came in the mail and Sandy said, this better be for a sermon illustration. You know, it's just, it, you know, they are. And, and you know, you sit, you sit there and say, this is who we are. And so we were in, in chains before God or, or, you know, it was slavery to sin. And God came and he bought the price of redemption. We were, and in this, we've got to understand what it means that we were slaves that needed to be redeemed. Now, all of us, apart from God's intervention, that's the reality. We're in bondage to the master of sin and death. We're powerless to escape. Now, many of us would say, I don't like that image. You know, I don't think I'm a slave. I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm a free person. Okay, well, let's do a test of freedom, all right? Are you a slave to sin? Some people, again, especially, just, I don't think I am. Okay, let's think about this. Are you free to live the life that you want? Are you free to live the perfect life? Are you free to do all the things that you want? Even as an illustration, when we started this, uh, this year, we did a short series about you know, new, new Year, New You, and we talked about New Year's resolutions and how many of us don't even set them anymore because we've set them in the past and we never keep them. And 
But deep down, there's something at the beginning of the year we often think about, what would be the things that I could do that would be good for me, that would be helpful, that I want to do? And we make a resolution to try to do something that is in our benefit, right? We want to do it, it's good for us, we try to do it, and seldom do they last more than two weeks. Now, why is it that we have things that we want to do, that we know are good for us, that we're driven to do, we're motivated to do, and yet we fail to do them? Maybe it's because we're not free. You see, if we're free, I would do all the things that I want to do. I would do the things that are good for me, but I'm not. The fact is, there's some degree that I'm controlled by my sin nature. I'm controlled by the, by the message of the world, so I end up doing things that I don't want to do. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. Look at what he says. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. We relate to that. He continues, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I want to do something, but I'm not free to actually accomplish the very things I want to do. He continues, for I do not do the good that I want, but the, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if what I do is do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me basically saying, why is this? Because I'm not free. And the fact of the matter is we might say that we're free. We're free to do whatever we want. We're really not. Because if we were free to do whatever we want, we would do a lot of things that we want to do, but we just lack the ability. This is the case for all of us. We're naturally enslaved to sin. Now, now somebody said, well, that's sin. Well, we're slaves to not only sin, but death. He said, I'm not slave to death. All right, okay, let's prove it. Live forever. Uh, can you do that? Can you defeat death? If you're not controlled by death, can you live? And some of us try, so we're going to try to do everything that we can to be able to live as well as we can. We're going to take vitamins and drink filtered water and exercise, and, and then still, you know, you go out and you get hit by a car. You know, and the fact is we don't control these things, or we have cancer and we have things that we can't control. Why? Because we do not have control even over the impact. What is death? It's the impact of sin. So we are slaves to sin and death. That's our, our natural state. And our only hope then is that if we want to be free, it has to be purchased. We have to be redeemed. And the fact is, the simple truth is this. Sin demands a price to be paid to release its victim. Now, again, we may not understand this, but deep down we understand that certain sins demand a price. Let me even illustrate this even just practically. All right, let's say after World War II, Adolf Hitler, let's say he survived and he's put on trial for all the things that he did, putting, you know, systematic killing of millions of Jews, all the other crimes that he did. And let's say he gets before the judge and he starts crying and said, I feel really bad, I feel a lot of guilt, and, and I, I'm, I'm really sorry. And the judges say, you know what, we heard you, we're going to show grace, all is forgiven, you're free. How do you think the world would respond? How would you respond? I mean, it'd be like, no, are you kidding? Do you know what this guy did? There's got to be justice. There's got to be price to be paid for the wrong that he's done. And you see the same thing happen in trials where you have someone who has wronged somebody, killed somebody, raped somebody, whatever, and you have the victim show up in the trial and they say, we demand justice. We demand that there's a sentence that, that is just, a just payment of what the crime deserves. I want you to see, we understand deep down that sin has a price. But the problem is we think of that as the extreme sins, and ours isn't that bad, and we don't think that ours really demands that. 
And here's what you have to say. The Bible teaches that when we really stand before God, God is holy. And in reality, all of our sins are such that they demand a price. And the price specifically is eternal death, is separation from God. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 6 when he says, the wages of sin is death. And if that's the wages, that means the price to be paid, in a sense, to be freed from that sin would be death. It's an idea that the Bible teaches throughout. Hebrews chapter 9 is another example. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of paying of that price, there can be no forgiveness. So the fact is, because we're sinful, we can't do that for ourselves because, because we're already condemned. Our only hope is for someone else to come and pay the price that we could never pay. And that's what Jesus did. The price of our redemption was the blood of Jesus. That's what it's talking about in Ephesians 1.7 when it says, in him we have redemption through his blood. Jesus came to earth, and what happened is he never sinned. He lived the perfect life. As a result, he was not bound to sin. He was not in any way bound by it. He was not enslaved to it, nor was he bound or enslaved to his penalty of death. And what he did at the cross is that he came and he took our sins upon himself. He took the penalty, the payment, the, the, you know, the death that our sins deserved, and he took that upon himself so that he paid the price of freedom that our sins required. So the only way that we could be set free is through this redeeming price being paid. And my friends, this is incredible. This is what is being taught here. And it's taught, being taught that this idea that, okay, we didn't, we didn't deserve, it's not like God looked at us and said, oh, you look so nice, I want you to become. No, we were sinners. We were in the slave market. We, were, we had to be redeemed and brought out. And that's what God did. That's how much he loved us. He paid that price. It's this great act of life. That's, it's taught throughout the Bible. First Tim, Peter is another example. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So he who is righteous, who was not bound by sin, paid for the price of us, the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. He redeemed us from our slavery that he could then adopt us as, our child, as his child. And so when we look at this, we've got to say, this is an amazing truth. But if you understand it, the whole concept of adoption and redemption go even deeper. Because it's not only that he redeemed us from slavery, but there's other blessings that are purchased. In a sense, what you have is that Jesus is saying, okay, his death is an overpayment. It's not only buying our freedom, but it's an overpayment, and it buys for us a whole bunch of other things. And that's what he's getting into in, in Ephesians. Look at again, verses uh, 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And one of the blessings is clear. He not only buys us freedom, but he also purchases our, our payment of forgiveness. We have forgiveness through the payment of our sins. He doesn't just purchase us from slavery and say, hey, good luck and live a good life now. Some people will teach that. Oh, he forgives that, and then, then you got to do it on your own. No, it's, it's something that, that he says, okay, I've purchased this, and I've now forgiven you so that your sins are forgiven. Now, this is something that we don't always talk about, but it's important that we do. That when you understand, if you really want to understand that we've been forgiven and, and what we've been saved, we've got to understand what we've been forgiven from. We've got to understand that we, that we were sinners that deserved, that we were in slavery, that we deserved death. See, we, in our culture, often talk about forgiveness in a very light way. How many times have you heard someone say, well, we need to forgive and forget, you know, just forgive and forget. You know, I hear it all the time, 
Terrible, terrible theology, terrible advice. And here's why. Because in practice, forgive and forget really means let's, let's bury it and ignore it, pretend it's not there. And it's not really forgiven. It's just being ignored. And for example, I've dealt with families where, let's say, one party has an affair and, 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 you know, and they deal with it. And then it's like, okay, they come in and say, well, we just need to forgive. I've said, I'm sorry, let's forgive and forget. And there's never dealing with the degree of, of betrayal that was there. It's never really exposing, this is, this is the wound. And until you expose the wound, you can't forgive it. You've got to say, this is what was here. And even when you look at it, there's a price to be paid. And either I cannot forgive and I can say, okay, I'm going to continue to hold it against you and punish you, or I'm going to eat the price and say, yes, you wound me, and, and I'm going to accept that price, and I'm going to pay it. And, that's, and now, now I'm going to release you. See, forgiveness starts by acknowledging the wrong that was done and the just and proper penalty. It, it starts by acknowledging you know, how, how broken it is, how wrong it was. And, and until we understand that, we can't really understand the true nature of forgiveness. Even going back to the whole picture of, of redeeming love, and you think of that whole story. What was the issue there? You know, she was haunted. Angel was haunted by her past. You know, they would find her. And, and it's kind of like, just forget it. And it's, it's not, no, I've got to realize that and own the fact that, yes, I was abused. Yes, I was rejected. I've got to deal with that. Yes, I've, I've acted as the prostitute and say, okay, but, but you understand all those things and you're willing to forgive them. See, and many of us have, have hidden sins of things that we've just buried and we just are unwilling to deal with. We feel so shameful and my friends, I've dealt with so many people over the years that you just can't really ever fully accept the love of Christ because you've never really been able to pull out and say, God, I acknowledge this is what I've done. This is what I am. This is what needs forgiveness. See, learning to God, accept God's forgiveness isn't, doesn't mean that we repress our memories and try to bury things and not think about them. It means that we fully acknowledge what we have done and realize that while we acknowledge that, it's been transferred to the cross. John, 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, what does confess our sins mean? It means that we agree with God about the nature of our sins, that we take full ownership of what we've done. We expose the wound. God, this is the wound. Then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us more in righteousness. When we say, God, this is how much of a mess I am. He says, okay, now that you expose the wound, now you expose the mess, I can fully cleanse that. I can make it new. Why? Because it's paid for in Christ. It deserves to be punished. It deserves, you don't understand. Yes, it is punished. It's paid for in Christ. It's transferred on Christ. The redeeming price has been paid. See, forgiveness isn't about forgetting wrongs, but it's about acknowledging and releasing. It's acknowledging and releasing it to God and believing what he says about us and then learning to forgive others in that same way. That's the challenge that we have. And when we understand that, we realize that he not only he forgives us, he releases us, and then he changes us so that he doesn't just say, okay, you're forgiven and good luck, or, or I'm going to accept you, and, but you got a mark against you. But no, he says, okay, I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to make you from a slave to a son, and not a second-rate son, not a second-rate child, but I'm going to make you my full child. Why? Because we are redeemed by him. We're re redeemed according to his power, according to his grace. That's what it means. And it means that if you understand that you have been redeemed, that he has loved you even while he rejected him, even in the failures that we have, do you understand that there's nothing that he can't forgive? There's nothing that he can't do, you know, do in your life, that there's, that there's, no, high, you know, there's no 
grace that he's going to show to you? Do you understand that if the price that was paid for redemption and how that proves God's love for you? Look what it says in, in, in Romans chapter 8 about this. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all. If God paid that price of redemption, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Do you understand that you're loved that much? Are you amazed at what God has, has done for you? See, one of the problems, again, is if we make light of our sin, we make light of the price that God has paid. I talk to people sometimes, and they'll talk about, well, I know there's something, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I'll pray for God to forgive me afterwards, and it's not a big deal. And it's kind of like, okay, it's cheap grace. I can just do what I want, and God's got to forgive me. And, and, and we make small of our sin, and then we make small of God's forgiveness. And again, it's, you know, it's, it's really not dealing with the ownership of it, saying, no, this is how bad it was, and, but, but the price was paid. And when I fully reveal the sin, when I fully reveal the scar, when I real fully reveal the wound, then I fully allow God to take it and transfer it to Christ, and I can believe, yes, that was me. Yes, as it, you know, you look at at, at at Angel in the movie, in the movie, in the book, and it's again, that was me, but it's covered, it's paid for. That's that's who I was. It's not who I am. I'm now redeemed. I've been bought. I've been changed. I've been adopted. My identity is new. And what happens is we live differently. If we understand what has been done and the cost, we live differently. Look what it says about this in 1 Peter. And if you call on him who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear and, uh, throughout the time of your exile. Now, what does it mean, fear? It really talks about not being fearful of. It means respect, understanding the truth. And what do we need to understand? He continues, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers, knowing that you were purchased. And how was it? Not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were perished. He paid that price. You've been redeemed. You understand how much you're loved. You now understand how he's pursued you. Do you understand that, that it's paid in full, that that's, you're changed, you're a new person. And if you understand that, you start to live up to this high calling. And what does that look like? Well, let's go back to verses, start in verse 7. He, like, he gives us the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And you know what this is saying? It's amazing. It's beautiful what he's saying. If you understand that he has forgiven you, that he has redeemed you, that he has adopted you, he has made you his child, it's given you relationship with him. Now, the result is that he wants you to live up to that. And if you live up to that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change you. And here's how it's going to change you. It's going to help you understand how to, that God wants to reconcile and restore all things to his original design. That's what it means when it says that he has this plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and earth. Here's what it is. What's the problem that we had? Our problem is that we had a broken relationship with God. What does Christ do? He redeems us and he restores this relationship with God. So we're adopted, we're now his child, and all the blessings are that we are in him. Now what happens when we fix our relationship with God? Are you right with God? That's a starting point. And as you get right with God... What happens is you start to align everything else with God's design. 
Everything else is broken because we're wrong with God. So we're making decisions based on our wisdom or the wisdom of the world. And the more that we get right with God, the more that we align these things. That's why Paul starts here. And then we're going to get into you know, the later chapters and we're going to talk about here's relationships and here's family and here's our work and here's all these different things. And they all fall out because if you understand this idea and if you're right with God, the more that you're right with God, he's going to res restore everything to the original design. He's going to start to turn back the clock. He's going to, we're going to even see next week, take even our scars, even our abuse, even our mistakes, even our regrets, and even then redeem those things so that he's able to take those and say, okay, now let me turn them to something, something that I can bring glory to. Let me use them in your life so that I can actually put them back to the original design so that your life increasingly starts to look like what I want you to be that we're living as his child. My friends, where does it start? It starts again in a relationship with Jesus. It's not, okay, try harder, do more. It's not self, it's, no, that's religion. But religion always falls short. Why? Because we're naturally slaves to sins. It's not about what we do. It's about our acknowledgement of our need and saying, God, I agree with you, I'm a sinner and I need that and I'm a slave to sin. I can't beat this and, and my only hope isn't, my effort, my goodness, it's redemption. It's my acknowledgement that need and, and recognize that I need you to buy the freedom and that only happens by my faith and trust in Jesus and trusting in what Jesus has done where he's taken our sins upon the cross, he's taken our death on the cross and he's paid the debt. Have you ever trusted in Christ? Have you ever said, God, I need you. I ask you to forgive me. I need that relationship. If you've never done that, I hope and pray that you would do so today. That's where it starts. And as we have that relationship, it then means that we learn to understand all that it means. Yes, we were broken. Yes, we have these wounds. Yes, don't ignore those. Don't run away from them. Run toward them. Understand that so that I can say, these are the wounds that I bring to Christ. God, these are the things. These are the scars that I need you to redeem. These are the things that I need to trust are fully covered in Christ. This is who I was, but it's not who I am anymore. And I'm not trying to hide it. I'm not trying to pretend Actually learn to bring those two things to Christ because, again, I can only, he can only heal the wounds that I expose, that I admit. My friends, when you do that, you say, okay, this is who I was. Let him redeem that. Let him say those things are washed, that you've been forgiven, that you've been made new in Christ, that you are now a child. You're not a child with an asterisk that, yeah, he's an, you know, but he comes from a rough background. No, we're a child that he has made new, that he's made holy, that, that we are a child of the king. This is our identity. Know how much you've been loved. And then learn to live up to that identity, that truth of who you truly are. 